Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good evening, everybody. Wow, is it May already? Laszlo Montgomery here with another CHP episode, number 273, since the Royal We began this long-running family program back in June 2010. Ah, the good old days. In this episode, I'd like to start a whole new series that's going to run for the rest of this year and next year as well. As of last night, when I checked, if you include Taiwan, there are still... 23 provinces, five autonomous regions, four municipalities, and two special administrative regions that make up the People's Republic of China. And starting from this episode, we'll look at them all. But not all at once. Otherwise, I may as well change the name of this show to the Chinese Provincial History Podcast. We'll still keep the whole random topics format going like we always did. And every now and then, I'll present one of these histories of the provinces. So you can hear the same old history of China told a couple dozen times, but from the unique vantage point of each individual province. It's only fitting that I begin with Henan. Many years ago, when I was still in the business of flooding the U.S. market with low-priced made-in-China products, I was in New York for a trade show, probably the National Stationery Show at the Javits Center. As usual, I was there with a number of colleagues from the head office in Ningbo in tow, and I'm guessing that it was most likely following another fine dinner at the Tang Pavilion on West 55th, or Wuliang Ye on West 48th Street, that we found ourselves wandering around Times Square. And I'll never forget, among the many advertisements flashing from the buildings surrounding the square, there was one from the Henan Tourism Bureau, and the billboard said something to the extent of, Visit Henan, where China began. And though the good and great people of Shanxi, Shanxi, Shandong, Gansu might hotly dispute this notion, I think there's nothing wrong in saying, That's where China began, Henan province. And we know from past history classes, all those documentaries and YouTube videos, the greatest ancient world civilizations all began alongside major rivers and river valleys. Egypt and the Nile, Mesopotamia and the Tigris and Euphrates, India and the Indus River, Russia and the Dnieper River. And for China, it was the Yellow River and its tributaries. The Huanghe as it's known in Chinese, is referred to often as the Mother River, the Muqinhe. This sixth longest river system in the world, second in China to the Yangtze, begins its transcontinental journey across northern China in the snow-capped Bayanhar Mountains of Qinghai, and it snakes eastward across the land till it empties out into the Bohai Sea in Shandong province. Now, I don't want to infer there was nothing going on elsewhere in China. We'll get to that all in good time. But as far as the Huaxia concept of the Chinese nation, all these tribes that lived along the Yellow River, 
their culture and mythology, that claimed a common ancestor, the Yellow Emperor. This is where it all started. Elsewhere, yes, but most definitely in Hunan. Hunan province today, it's a little over 64,000 square miles, or about the size of the U.S. state of Wisconsin, or a bit larger than Tunisia. Whereas the dairy state only has a population of about 6 million, Hunan weighs in at about 95 million people. And if every Hunan resident went back home from the places all over China and Asia where they work, the number's over 100 million. Population-wise, Hunan, if it were its own country, would rank among the top 20 countries in the world. To give you the basic lay o' the land, Hunan is mountainous to the west, and one massive floodplain to the east. And this plain straddles the many river systems that watered all these earliest Neolithic cultures and Bronze Age civilizations, allowing them to thrive so early in humankind's development. And like floodplains are wont to do, aside from serving as one of the breadbaskets to the nation, they were the site of untold numbers of destructive floods that punctuated the glorious timeline of Hunan history. Hunan's mountains included the Taihang Mountains in the northwest, Funyo Mountains to the west, and in the south, the Dapia Mountains separated Hunan from its southern neighbors of Hubei and Anhui. The three main river systems of Hunan were the Yellow River in the north and northwest, the Huai to the east and southeast, and in the southwest of the province were the Tang and Bai Rivers. Funny thing about Henan is that the name of the province is misleading. He means river, and in this case, the Yellow River. And Nan means south. So Henan means south of the Yellow River. But if you look on a map, you'll see the Yellow River runs right through the north of the province. This land, in the most ancient texts written during the Zhou Dynasty, was called Zhongyuan, or Central Plain. It's also called Zhongzhou, meaning Middle State. Up till now, the CHP has yet to cover any of China's Neolithic cultures. We'll look at them all before the last province is introduced. But as far as Hunan is concerned, there were four. Pei Li Gang, Yang Shao, Longshan, and Arli To cultures. They all thrived in Hunan. So let's start with them. The names of these Neolithic cultures, and perhaps most of you have at least heard of them before. The provinces of China hadn't been delineated as we know them in our day, so while they were mainly located in one region, some of them spilled over into adjacent provinces. And during these most ancient evenings in Chinese history, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 or more years BCE, archaeologists, anthropologists, other scientists, and historians as well, have studied the significance of every artifact that has been dug out of the ground in Hunan, and have drawn certain conclusions about the development of those places, and have slowly filled out the timeline of Chinese history. And no matter which way you look at it, these most ancient descendants of the people who call the Chinese nation their home, or ancestral homeland, all had their beginnings here. Not all, of course. The provinces where the Yangtze River flows and all the land south of this longest river in China, they all had a different beginning than what was happening in and around the river systems of Henan. Their earliest development, as well as many other provinces in modern China, 
had a completely independent early history than what was happening up in the north. As for all these lands in the central and southern part of China, we'll examine them all in good time. They aren't part of our story today. In 1977, Peilikang culture was discovered in the Yi and Luo River Basin. These two rivers converge south of Luoyang and eventually flow into the Yellow River. Any new Stone Age peoples looking for a nice place to settle could have done a lot worse. The city of Luoyang, as most of you know, figures prominently in the history of not only Henan, but also for the political state of China, at least up to the fall of the Northern Song in the 12th century. Peiligang culture is as far back as you could reliably go in Chinese civilization, roughly 7,000 to 5,000 BCE. So much history happened in Henan, and so much has been discovered in just the last century and a half. But there's still much more in the province that hasn't been unearthed yet, and will keep archaeologists busy there for centuries to come. So in Henan province, this is where it all started to happen in China, nine, ten thousand years ago. So much has been learned from the major discoveries beginning in the 20th century that has enhanced the notion espoused by the Hunan Tourism Authority that this province is indeed where China began. Let me quickly mention one thing, though this was not part of the thriving Heiligang culture in the north of the province. In 1986, archaeologists found China's oldest musical instrument, it's known as the Jiahu Gu Di, and was dated to about 7,000 BCE. They found this in the center of Henan and Wuyang County along the Shaha River. And this flute was made from the bone of a crane. And like so many of the objects unearthed, you can see this flute up close on your next visit to the Henan Provincial Museum. Peiligang culture gave way to one of the more familiar names we remember from China's prehistory, this is Yangshao culture, first discovered in 1921. There's more than one version as to the dates when Yangshao culture flourished. 5,000 to 3,000 BCE is as good an educated guess as any. It stretched from Gansu in the west to Shandong in the east, passing through the Wei River Valley of southern Shanxi. Yangshao culture was famous for their painted pottery with geometric designs and humans and animals. And if you remember from that old CHP 179 episode on the ancient history of silk, the earliest fragments of silk from the Bombyx Mori moth were found in Yangshao archaeological sites. So China's discovery of silk, one of their signature products to this very day, had its start during Yangshao culture that flourished in Henan along the banks of the Yellow River. There were hundreds of Yangshao settlements. Some had higher levels of sophistication than others that could be seen in their pottery designs. But in these preliterate civilizations, we mostly rely on what the relics dug out of tombs reveal to us. Compared to what we started learning in the literate Zhou dynasty, it's slim pickings, man. Elsewhere in the world, the final centuries of Yangshao culture saw the emergence of Sumer in Mesopotamia and the uniting of Lower and Upper Egypt by Menes. Hieroglyphics are first getting written down. 3760 BCE, the Jewish calendar began. 
After Yangshao culture came the other well-known time period that many of us have at least heard of. This is Longshan culture, also known as black pottery culture because of their most distinguishing relics, their high-quality black pottery, some of it polished and eggshell thin. Longshan, or Dragon Mountain, was located just east of Jinan. Therefore, Longshan culture, roughly 3000 to 2000 BCE, is mostly associated with Shandong province, but there were also similarly sophisticated Longshan settlements going on in Henan and Shanxi. Henan was located in the middle reaches of the Yellow River, and Shandong in the lower reaches. Those were the main locations of Longshan culture. They hadn't started building city walls yet in the time of Yangshao culture, but they had them in Longshan culture about four or 5,000 years ago in China. That's when human beings from different parts of the land started beating up on each other, and defensive walls first began to be built for protection. The last of these major Neolithic cultures of northern China was called Arlitou. Not everyone is in agreement on this, but there are some rather compelling arguments that equates this Neolithic culture with the mythical Xia Dynasty. The approximate dates of Arlito culture are 1900 to 1500 BCE, which sort of blends together with the dates of the Xia, 2070 to 1600 BCE. It was mostly located in Henan, but also spread next door to Shanxi. It was discovered in 1959. The earliest dings in Chinese history came from this period. These Shang and Zhou-era bronze vessels, called dings, appeared in all shrines and were used for all kinds of court rituals and ceremonies. These ding vessels are one of the most recognizable icons of ancient Chinese history. And what followed these Neolithic cultures, Pei Gang, Yangshao, Longshan, and Arlitou, was the beginning of Chinese recorded history. And in these mid-to-late Bronze Age times, when the total world population was some 60 million people, Henan province took center stage. Again, as we get to other provinces, we'll take a quick look at their prehistory and how things began to unfold for them during the second millennium BCE and before. Though this has never been proven, the Henan people, not to mention the provincial government as well, claim that their province is the birthplace of Xuanyuan, someone much better known to most as the Yellow Emperor. He's called the common ancestor of all Chinese and the founder of China's magnificent culture. He united all the disparate tribes living all along the river systems and taught a myriad of skills that allowed these Huaxia people to live long and prosper. He also taught his people about the cultivation of crops and developed the lunar calendar. The tomb of the Yellow Emperor is said to be located in Shanxi, and the official worship of Huang Di, as he's known in Chinese, is carried out in this neighboring province of Henan. If you ask Sima Qian, the grand historian himself, the Yellow Emperor lived from 2697 to 2597, the time of Gilgamesh and Sumeria, the beginnings of the Old Kingdom in Egypt, the pyramids of Senefru, half a century after the passing of the Yellow Emperor, Senefru's son, Khufu, 
would start building his great pyramid that stood 481 feet at its topmost point. These times, when the Yellow Emperor was doing his good deeds, were the earliest centuries of human civilization. Sima Qian considered the Yellow Emperor to be more of an historical person and not as legendary or mythical as Fuxi, Nuwa, and Shennong. The Xia Dynasty, the Shang Dynasty, the legends and history for both of these kingdoms all happened in Henan. As far as the future Chinese nation went, Henan was the epicenter. Following the legendary reigns of the most revered of all sage kings, Yao and Shun, came Yu the Great, 2123 to 2025 BCE. His early days were spent in Shanxi province, not Henan. Yu set up his first capital in Henan at Yangcheng, which is near the sacred Mount Song, one of the five great mountains of China and the home of Shaolin Temple. In 1977, an archaeological site was unearthed called Wangchenggang that some claim was this first capital of the revered Xia Dynasty founder. Later on, the capital was moved to ancient Zhenxun near present-day Luoyang. Over and over throughout the first thousand or so years of Chinese history, you'll keep hearing about Luoyang, capital of 13 dynasties and one of the Sida Gudu, or four ancient capitals of China. It's only after the northern Song was toppled in 1127 that the center of gravity in China's political state shifted away from Luoyang. Yu the Great, it said, named the original nine provinces of China, the Jiuzhou. Henan was Yuzhou and also part of Yanzhou. In the 21st century, that character Yu, from this province named by Yu the Great, is still the Jiancheng, or abbreviated name that Henan is known by today. Yu, this character, you see on all Henan registered license plates. And whenever you see this character, it's pronounced Yu, but it stands for Henan. After the fall of the Xia came the Shang. During the five and a half centuries of this first Chinese dynasty, for which there is a written record attesting to its history, there were three capitals. Yanshi, just east of Luoyang, Zhengzhou, the present-day capital of Henan province, and most famously at Anyang, where the oracle bones were discovered at the ruins of Yin at the beginning of the 20th century. All three Shang capitals were in Henan. The founder, Shang Tang, was from Henan as well, from around Shangqiu, to be exact. One little interesting thing about the Shang dynasty and Henan province, the word for China in Mandarin is Zhongguo. Well, let's believe the derivation for that name came from one of these nine states that comprised the Shang, and one of them was called Gu Yuguo. Gu it just means ancient. So this state of Yu, though not a long-lasting entity politically, was nonetheless physically located in the geographic center of the Shang lands and was known as Zhongguo, or the Middle Kingdom, or Middle State, for that reason. King Tang, the Shang founder, had as his first prime minister a man named Yi Yin. Besides being a wise and capable prime minister to his king and helping him in the overthrow of the Xia, He's also known in Chinese popular culture as the Chushan, or culinary god. 
As the legend goes, Yi Yin supposedly cooked his way into Shang Tang's life as his personal chef. He was the first one in Chinese history to note the Wu Wei, or five flavors of Tian, Suan, Ku, La, and Xian, sweet, sour, bitter, spicy, and salty. I'm not making this up, ladies and gentlemen. This is all straight out of the annals of Master Liu. The Liu Shi Chunxiu, Master Liu Bu Wei, had quite a bit to say about the culinary skills of Yi Yin. So he's considered not only the Chushan, but the father of Yu, or Hunan cuisine. Let's pull over a moment and discuss Hunan cuisine. There are several signature dishes that make up Yu Cai, or Hunan cuisine the one that's considered to be the oldest of all Chinese cuisines. Aside from several traditional ancient palace dishes that made it down to today, there's many dishes that borrow from the best of the surrounding provinces of Hunan. One friend of mine in Kaifeng told me every dish seems to have onions and the main meat is pork, and for soups, they use mutton and lamb. What are the two best Hunan dishes? I guess maybe... Hula Tang, or Hula Soup, and the famous Luoyang Water Banquet, or Shui Xi. Hula Soup, a breakfast favorite in Henan, or so I've been told, is eaten with a kind of flatbread and other kinds of bread similar to green onion pancakes, but not the same. It's a very hearty, thick soup with a unique blend of spices, very peppery and spicy, as the Hula name indicates. The water banquet, that is quite a legend attached to it. I don't know if this is the most representative dish of Yu cuisine, but it's probably the most famous dish in Luoyang, at least. This isn't something that you eat every day, like the Vietnamese bò bai mon. It's a once-in-a-while kind of thing. The Luoyang water banquet, don't order it if you're running to catch a movie or have to be somewhere at a certain time. It's a 24-course meal, and as the word shui indicates... There's a lot of soups that go with this gastronomic experience. There are 8 cold and 16 warm dishes. 8 plus 16 equals 24. All the warm dishes, they're either a soup or some kind of dish that's heavy on the gravy. The 24 dishes are served in 5 courses. No plates, all bowls. 4 of the 5 courses are served 3 dishes at a time. 1 big and 2 small. The big dish would be more substantial than the two smaller ones that accompany it. The fifth course consists of four dishes, referred to as the end dishes. If you'd like to see this for yourself, you could go to YouTube, Yoku, or any of your favorite video channels. You could see it for yourself. There's a couple good ones. I'll put links to them in the uh, show notes. And just as water flows from one place to the next, so it is with these dishes, one after the other, just as you finish them. They flow like water in front of you. If you lived in Luoyang and you were showing a good time to some VIP or out-of-towner, at least in the olden days, I don't know about now, the Shui Xi water banquet was how you wined and dined them. Yi Yin, the culinary god, the Chu Shan, he had nothing to do with this. This comestible pageant came much later, during the Sui, towards the end of the 6th century CE. The Tang followed the short-lived Sui, so this Water banquet somehow got associated with Empress Wu Zetian, and what was originally a more simple style of eating became more upscale and fanciful, and henceforth was known as the Empress Wu Banquet. And during the Song, it was known as the Luoyang Banquet. 
What else is there? There's a special Xiaobing. That's a Henan specialty. Wuxiang Xiaobing. Five spice Xiaobing. A Xiaobing. It's a kind of a pocket bread that you can stuff ingredients inside. It's like a pita, but just in functionality. The Henan version adds five spice to the flavor, and it's quite fragrant. There was plenty going on in Henan province during the Zhou dynasty. During this last of China's Bronze Age dynasties, the capital was located first, not far from present-day Xi'an, in Shanxi province. After the fall of the Western Zhou in 771 BCE, it was moved east to Luoyang, then called Wangcheng, the King's City. And this became the center of the Eastern Zhou dynasty. The Western Zhou centered around Xi'an, Eastern Zhou in Luoyang, And when the spring and autumn and warring states periods of the Eastern Zhou were in full bloom, 770 to 256 BCE, Chinese culture began evolving at a much faster clip. By the Zhou dynasty, they had moved far beyond inscriptions on oracle bones. They were inscribing words that would last for millennia on bronze tablets and vessels. And rather than introduce all the happenings in Hunan province during the Eastern Zhou, including all the kingdoms and states surrounding the center in Luoyang, let's bring the curtain down for now, and next time we'll look at more Hunan province history. If this episode sounds like a survey on ancient Chinese history, that's because the history of these earliest centuries of recorded Chinese history, and prehistory too, was centered in and around Hunan province. When we get to Sichuan, it wasn't like this at all. So please consider coming back. We're going to take this topic of Hunan province all the way up to modern times. So we still have a long way to go. Hey, let me uh, plug a new history podcast show I started listening to recently. It's one of those that gives you three histories for the price of one. Mark Vinette's History of North America podcast. You get the histories of Canada, Mexico, and these United States. It's relatively new came out last year in 2020. Nice, short history shows, only 10 minutes or so each. Check it out. I did. Subscribe to his YouTube channel, too. I'll have links at the show notes at the website, the History of North America podcast. You know, so many listeners email me and tell me, hey, man, you need to mention about how to support the CHP at the beginning of the show, not at the end. By that time, most listeners are already 10 seconds into their next podcast. They have queued up. Alas, so as not to aggravate any of you, I saved my pitch for the end. And as I occasionally do, may I cordially invite you to support me and the CHP by signing up at patreon.com slash China History Podcast. There you'll find a bunch of stories already there waiting for you that detail some of the incidents from my past life. There's more being added all the time. And furthermore, whenever I get these CHP episodes finished a little early... You can always get an early listen a few days prior to the millions and millions of others who must patiently wait for the next regular scheduled offerings from the CHP every other Sunday, 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Patreon.com slash China History Podcast. Is Patreon not your cup of tea? That's okay. You can also hit me up at paypal.me slash China History Podcast. Subscribe to my YouTube channel, too, while you're at it. 
Okay, enough of this panhandling and grandstanding. This is Laszlo Montgomery wishing you all the very best and hoping things are looking up and up for all of you in 2021. Please see if you can carve out a half hour next time for what I'm guaranteeing in writing will be another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.